all miracles and must make the most of our limited time here. Each of us have these unique gifts to contribute to the world and it's our job to develop these gifts and give them away. That's why I created the Preschool SLP podcast. The Preschool SLP is about working smarter to create real change in ourselves and in others. Being an SLP is a mission. Let's discuss topics that matter. What are the game-changing strategies? How can we treat the whole child? How can we create the shiniest versions of ourselves and of our clients? We're here at the drawing board for a reason. You bring your own unique gifts. Together, let's create better. If you evaluate children for speech sound disorders, this is an episode that you are going to simply love. You are going to love this episode because we're going to talk about whether or not you should qualify children for speech sound disorder therapy that are stimulable. Let me give you a little bit of background. One of my CIS members, a big shout out to Barb, emailed me last night. And Barb is a speech pathologist in a public school setting that services preschoolers and elementary age. And what happened is the state audited their district and the state said, you have too many children that are under the eligibility of speech impairment that you're servicing. So the district is looking at how are they referring and screening and evaluating children for speech sound disorder eligibility. And her question to me was this, if the children are stimulable, if you give them a verbal model, they can repeat these words correctly after you. Then should we qualify them for speech services or should we not qualify them and say they're likely to naturally develop these sounds because they are stimulable? And when I say stimulable, I mean if you say the word, they can repeat it after you and say it correctly. So this is not a yes or no response. I cannot say to Barb, yes, if they are stimulable, if you say the words and they can say it after you, go ahead and say, go on your way and I'll see you later, alligator. It's going to naturally develop. It's simply not that easy. Communication impairments are complex. I'm going to share with you what I would do at the screening level today and what I would look at before making that yes or no decision. I'm also going to dive in today. I'm excited to share this with you. The very latest research from May 2022, this is JSLHR. This is a huge study in the field of speech sound disorders. In terms of numbers, 
you are looking at a total of 82 four-year-olds. And it's a longitudinal study that followed them to age six and a half, from four years to age six and a half. So this is research we're going to want to pay attention to. I can't wait to dive into that with you. This research is all about stimulability and how much does stimulability matter? Is that a prognostic factor that indicates that they're going to naturally develop these sounds? I can't wait to dive into this article with you. I'm going to save this for the end because this is icing on the cake. Let's get into the cake first. So these are the factors I would look at before deciding that a child is not eligible. And this is minimally the factors I would look at. Now, a lot of these factors are covered in my book. I have my speech sound disorder book. There's a download. It's called a parent input form. You download it. You can put your name on it. It's an excellent form that looks at every single one of these factors. It looks at the background. It looks at the child's temperament. It looks at the child's perceived intelligibility, which we're all going to get into. We're going to dive into that. It's all in that three-page parent input form. And you're going to need that information if you're going to make an educated decision about whether or not to qualify this child for services. But let's dive in into the factors that I'm concerned with. Number one, does this child have a speech sound disorder objectively based on the severity? And what we can look at there is I like to give the single word standardized test. And the reason I like to give that is at the preschool level, the latest research indicates that it is consistent with a connected speech sample. So how preschoolers perform on those single word tests is very much reliable with how they talk in conversation. And it only takes 10 minutes 15 minutes max if I'm giving the gift of three, that takes 15 minutes with a preschooler. If I'm giving the cap two, which is my personal favorite, the cap two takes me 10 minutes. So I like to give that test because it gives me objective measurement of how severe is this child's impairment. That's going to matter a lot. That's my objective measurement, whether it's a mild impairment, whether it's moderate, whether it's severe. And if something is looking moderate to severe, this is likely going to be a child that I will qualify for services. This is an important measurement for me. Second, I'm going to look at objectively is I can look at percent consonant correct. And this is very easy. This is not like taking a large 50 utterance language sample. If you have a paragraph of connected speech that you transcribe, that's going to easily give you a hundred consonants. You take those hundred consonants. What number out of those hundreds do they have correct? That's the percent consonant correct. If it's below 85%, that indicates it's a moderate to severe if it's less than 50% of correct consonants. So once again, if I'm in that moderate to severe zone, I don't care how much the child can imitate when I give them the verbal model. This is telling me objectively, this child's intelligibility is quite impaired. This is a child where I'm going to want to be more safe than sorry. These objective measurements really do matter. They have research to support them as reliable measurements. 
what else could I look at? I could look at the perceived intelligibility. So in my parent input form, which you can download if you get my speech sound disorder textbook, that form has three questions. The first question is to the parent, how much of the speech do you understand percentage-wise? So the parent would write in the percentage of speech that they understand. The second question is, how much do those who are familiar with your child understand? So teachers, relatives, and they write in that percentage. Then I ask, what percentage would you say people who are unfamiliar understand? That's all in the parent input form. And they write that number in. Now, this is a really important measurement, the percent intelligibility. Once again, it's a more subjective measurement. However, the research indicates that this subjective measurement is highly reliable to these objective measurements that we talked about earlier. These are numbers that we care about and that simply you can get that information from asking these three questions. And what you're going to find is that's going to be pretty reliable to the percent consonant correct. The third area that I want to look at, of course, is the social impact. Now, this is huge because children as young as three years of age, I see huge impact in which children are already avoiding certain words. They're avoiding speaking situations. I see children talking in sentences that are much shorter than what they're capable of, understanding that they won't be understood unless they speak in these really short utterances. I see these children acting shy in the group setting when it comes to talking situations because they're embarrassed about their speech. And then when I see them in one-on-one -on -one in therapy, the talkative. I can also see if there's an educational impact in which the teacher says in class when it's their turn to share their thoughts or ideas, they put their head down and hide. So that's an educational impact. So this social impact is huge as well. Are other people talking for the child and the child not talking? The next thing I want to look at is the type of errors. These details really, really matter. All equal errors are not created equally. So when you look at these standardized speech tests, the child could have a TH error, which is really normal for a three-year-old to have a TH error, but that equals the same thing as a deletion error, which is much more significant. We want to look at the errors. And what I like to look at is vowel errors. When I see vowel errors, that tells me the child is at greater risk for a language impairment, greater risk, therefore, for a literacy impairment. These are children, if you're on the fence about you're more likely going to want to pick up because you're seeing those vowel errors. Because when children do have language impairments, these children often go under the radar and don't receive any support whatsoever. If you're treating the children how I do when you're treating a speech sound disorder, in which you're treating the whole entire child and taking a holistic approach, you're way better off taking up a child that's at risk for language or literacy impairment under the eligibility of a speech impairment. What else do I care about? Deletions. Am I saying deletions of syllables or deletions of sounds at preschool age? Once again, these are children that are at greater risk 
for language and literacy impairments. I want to qualify them if I see these types of errors. What else am I looking for? I'm looking for atypical phonological processes. The ones that really stand out to me is are they doing something much harder than something easier? I always think, are you holding your phone on the other ear over your head like this, that tells me that maybe you have a broken shoulder. There's some reason why you're doing something that's a million times harder than the easier sound. And if they're doing that, oftentimes there's some type of neurological difference. So that matters to me. For instance, a lot of my children with autism will replace stop consonants, which are the easiest consonants to produce in any language universally, and they'll replace it with liquids, the L or R, which are very difficult to produce. So that is holding the phone over your head holding it with your right hand into your left ear. Why are you doing that? That's what I mean about an atypical phonological process. Instead of substituting the sound for an easier sound, they're substituting it for a harder sound. If I see that, that to me is one of those areas where I'm going to say, I'm more in favor of seeing this child for services. Okay. What else do I look for? It's called error inconsistency. And in the literature, you're going to see this known as token to token inconsistency. And that means when you have the child, for instance, say the same word three times, and the child says that word differently each time, that inconsistency is another indicator that the child is more likely to be at risk for language or literacy impairments later on. So I care about that as well. If I'm on the fence, I'm going to more likely be conservative and say this is a child I do want to make eligible for services because I'm seeing some errors that place the child at greater risk for language and literacy impairments later on. This is not a child that we want to take a wait and see approach with. This is not a child that we want to see go under the radar. So now we're looking at coexisting conditions. Now, this latest research that just came out in December 2023 from the journal Pediatrics that looked at 8 million children found that children that were born preterm at 38 weeks, this is very slightly preterm because 39 weeks is considered by the NIH to be full term. Children born at 38 weeks and before then are statistically more likely to have language delays. So the birth date is now mattering much more than it did in the past. In the past, we really paid attention when children were born very preterm, when they were born at 32 weeks or maybe 34 weeks. But now we're finding even at 38 weeks, the children are more likely to have a language delay. So we need to really pay attention to that birth date when it comes to deciding whether or not to qualify these children. What we also want to look at is, is there a comorbid, of course, language delay, language impairment in the family history of dyslexia? That's very, very important. And we're going to want to Keep note of that. If the child has a family history of dyslexia, that's another one. If I'm on the fence, this is a child that I'm more likely to qualify for services if I'm seeing some other errors that indicate greater risk for literacy or language impairment. 
What about attention deficit disorder? Yes, if I'm seeing early signs of attention deficit disorder, I'm going to be more likely to qualify the child for services. And that's because the research indicates that they're more likely to have a lesser gains in speech development. I don't want to forget to mention motor impairments in the body. If I'm seeing motor impairments in the body, I'm also going to want to take note of that. And I'm going to be more likely to qualify this child for services because oftentimes what happens in the body happens in the mouth. And finally, of course, we're more likely to qualify the child if they have syndromes or other developmental delays. So there's a lot to look at when it comes to qualification. And definitely we can't use a decision tree and, oh, the child can repeat all of the error sounds, therefore go on your way and we'll see you in a year. That's not going to work. We need to look at the whole picture because communication impairments are multifaceted. And you need to take a multifaceted approach, not only in the intervention, but in the evaluation as well. So let's look at, at this original question that Barb asked. And Barb asked about specifically the importance of stimulability. Now, it almost seems like this journal article was written for Barb because the title of the general, journal article is Predicting Which Children Will Normalize Without Intervention for Speech Sound Disorders. So this study comes out of the University of Hong Kong, and the first author is Carol Kitsum too, and the second author is Sharon McLeod. Now Sharon McLeod, I don't know how she does it, but she publishes so many big studies in all of these different languages around the world, aside from being the editor of the International Journal of Communication Disorders. I don't know how she does it. I really don't but she does these big studies. Now, this study I wanna dive into because the abstract makes these claims that I really think you need to look at the details on. Let's talk about that. What they found is when looking at these children, this is a huge study, 82 four-year-olds, we're not used to this in the field of speech sound disorders, that's a big number. Looking at these 82 four-year-olds, they found that the four-year-olds that were stimulable and that had greater intelligibility based on what parents said, their percentage of intelligibility, the words that they could understand, how other people could understand them, they were more likely at age six and a half to normalize in speech, where without receiving intervention, these children would develop speech at six and a half years of age and be able to say their sounds correctly. We need to look at the definitions. Very importantly, they used a binary. Either you're stimulable or you're not stimulable. But to be stimulable, you had to be able to imitate every single ear sound correct given a verbal model in a CV. So if the child had problems with saying ka, they would say like k-kai, okay? And the child would have to say k-kai. They had to be able to do that with every single error. So if they were able to repeat some of the sounds correctly when they were just told to them, some of them incorrectly, then they were considered not stimulable in that group. I have never met a preschooler where I could look at the 10 error sounds they had and say, I'm going to say it and you say it after me and say it correctly. I have never met a child who just given a verbal model, even if I just put in a CV model like they did, 
just put it with a vowel, the sound. And they did that so you don't have that history of incorrect form in which, oh, I always say the word banana, nana, you know. They wanted to take that away by just putting it in a nonsense syllable form, which was smart work. But never had I had a child where I could take every single ear sounds and just say, say blank, and afterwards they say it correctly. So those were the children that were considered stimulable. So this is really important to look at the details. So you can't say, okay, look, I, I had this child and they had problems with the K and I did it and they were able to say it right. Yeah, they couldn't say the R right, but they said the K right. So let's not qualify them. No, when they say stimulable, they mean every single air sound they were able to say correctly, simply given a verbal model. And this is at age four. So that is what stimulable means. That's a very strict definition. The other one that they used, and I'm not comfortable with this, is they said we didn't find that atypical errors were predictive of, of how the child's speech developed. Now, I would disagree with their definition they used. The definition they used is, is that they made an error sound that was not typical two times, they considered distortion errors to be an atypical error. So if the child made a distortion error and they did it twice, they would consider that child to have, in quotes, atypical error patterns. To me, that is not an atypical error pattern. That is a distortion. And distortions are very common with all children I work with. When we see an atypical error pattern, it is something that the child does as a rule that in my book is they're doing something harder for an easier sound. The distortion is, I think, within normal limits. That's a typically developing error. You need to read the whole article. You get the idea, okay, if they're stimulable, they're going to naturally develop. And atypical errors don't matter. Oh, no, 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 no. We need to look deeper into this. Turn up the page. Stimulable means they could imitate every single error sound correctly, just given a verbal model. Wow, that's impressive. Okay, atypical error, that includes the child simply made two distortion errors on the test. They did that twice. That's considered a typical error pattern. So you really have to make pay close attention to the attention to the details. This is why I'm getting my doctorate right now from University of Florida because I get free access to the journal articles. And those journal articles can be $50 a pop. And I'm getting free access to the full text. And this is why, because the abstract can be quite misleading. You really have to be caveat emptor when it comes to research. And when, when conclusions are made that they say have clinical implications, you have to check that. Buyer beware, you have to check that. Now, of course, this research is also on children who speak Cantonese. Maybe in Cantonese, having a distortion is a very atypical thing to do. I do not know. I do not speak Cantonese. That is today what I wanted to share with you. I hope you loved it as much as I did. It was fun diving deep. I love learning with my CIS members. I love when they email me. They don't just ask a question. They say, I want to know what the latest research is on this. 
And I want to tell you, there is a body of small case study research that says stimulability is predictive of greater outcomes. And stimulability has been using all of the cues in your toolbox to using a verbal model. It's been something different in each study. And in most of the studies, this study is unique because in this study, they received no intervention. But in most of the studies, it was that the children received intervention and the stimulable sounds naturally developed. And I'm going to say the stimulable sounds i.e. the easier sounds naturally developed. And that's how speech always develops. If you're using a developmental approach, if you're like me, using the complexity approach, the earlier sounds are always, 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 always going to develop before the later ones, unless the child has autism because they break all the rules. That's what makes them the cool kids. We're sure You didn't have to work on those sounds that were stimulable, but would those sounds have developed if you weren't working on the more complex sounds? Because of the cascading impact, those sounds would have been the first to develop. About stimulability, when it comes to your goals, those are what you're going to want to pick. You're going to want to pick the most complex targets out there. And the research indicates even for children with childhood apraxia of speech, you don't want to pick targets that are stimulable. You want to pick targets that are not stimulable. And by picking those targets that are not stimulable, that's how you're going to create the greatest change. The research is not just for children with speech sound disorders, phonological, articulation impairment. It's also for the children with the motor speech disorders, such as childhood apraxia of speech. Challenge creates change. Stimulability, it does matter. You do want to pick sounds that are not stimulable as treatment targets. That said, you do care if a child is stimulable for all of the sounds and they're able to repeat it simply given a verbal model. Yes, the prognosis is better. And yes, if you're seeing that the other indicators are mild and everything else is looking great, This is a child that you might decide is not eligible for services. The numbers are mild. The intelligibility superiority is mild. And the child can also simply provide a verbal model, imitate everything that you're saying. This might be a child that you say, I'll see you in six months. Let's see where you are at that time. So I want you to take all of this information And make sure to check out the CIS membership if you haven't already, because the rate will be going up for members that join after January 1st, 2024. So my current members, we're all good. You're locked in at this low rate you're you're currently at. The new members, there's going to be a higher rate. So if you're on the fence about the CIS membership, check it out now. See if you like it. If you don't, you simply unsubscribe. But check it out now because then you can lock in the low monthly rate or lock in the low annual rate. Both of those will be going up for new members that join after January 1st, 2024. So take all of that information, roll up your sleeves and do what you do best, which is to make the world a better place. You are always going to be first. (laughs) 